some of you might recognize that little spot. Do you? Where's that? That's our own park. That's right. Who didn't know? Who lives in Alexandria and didn't recognize that spot? Do you recognize that one? Do you recognize that one, anybody? That's the Queen's Park Band Rotunda in the middle of Queen's Park. That's correct. Who said that? You? Yeah. Very well done. Yeah. Okay, and this one here is another shot of the Queenstown Park as well. Yes, there are reasons why I'm showing you all of these nice garden scenes today. I know that it is, what is today? It's Valentine's Day today, giving you some ideas about where you might be able to take your Valentine for a fish and chip lunch. <laughs> what are you laughing at? <laughs> I know somebody who took, uh, on his first date, took somebody down to the Alexandra Pie Cart. Didn't last, that one, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and this one you um, might not recognise. This is the Orchard Gardens, but not the Orchard Gardens that you know. In fact, that's the Orchard Gardens in Penang. That's a nice little spot, actually. It's right in the middle of the city. It's a restaurant. It's got... Fences all around it and um, plants growing all over it and you're right in the middle of the city and you feel like you could be miles away. You can hardly even hear the traffic. But there we go and there's my valentine uh, in the middle of that too. But today, um, on this series that we have started last week um, is called Limitless. And last week Craig talked to us about God's limitless grace. Today, we are going to be talking about uh, God's limitless plan of redemption. Do you recognize that one? Of course you do. But imagine if your favorite garden, a place that you are used to going, often like to go to, um, and then one day you go to go there, and you find that the gates are locked on that garden, and in front of it there are armed guards, and you wonder what on earth is going on, and you ask them, and they say, no, you can't go in there. Well, how long is this for? When will I be allowed back? And they say, no, never. And you say, why? And they say, it's because of something that you have done. And you were turned away from that place Forever. And that's what Adam and Eve faced, except they knew why. They knew why. God banished them from the Garden of Eden, a place which was not just a place where they used to go, a place that they lived in, a place where God had placed them, a place which was their work. They used to tend and look after that garden. It was the only place they ever knew, that they really knew. And a place where they used to talk to God in the evenings. He used to come down and spend that time with them. And that was that perfect lifestyle, wasn't it? It would have to be the most perfect lifestyle ever. And here God now has placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to 
the tree of life. But let's step back a wee bit and find out why. Let's recap on the reason why. What went wrong in there um, for uh, all of this to have happened? And even before that, we want to think about the validity of that story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because we all know that around the world, with all the many religions that we, that we have, that there are present, many of them have varying mythical degrees of stories about their history and things that happened way back. And even in our own countries, we have legends, don't we? Maori legends. And they are not meant to be believed, those Maori legends. But some of the religions have stories also that I'm not sure that anybody really believes, but they, they are myths about what has happened in times past. Is the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Eden really real? Well, we have the authenticity of the Bible, right, which is proven, and we know that what comes out of that Bible is true. But I think it's good just to stop and to think even more deeply than that, because in the Bible there are stories there that happened before the flood. What was the flood? Um, in Noah's day, when the whole earth was flooded, the world which was then was completely destroyed. And evidence and everything that went with it, completely gone. And in the early parts of the Bible, we have, before the flood, we only have actually four stories. One is um, the creation of the world. Two is this story here, Adam and Eve in the garden. Three is Cain and Abel and the murder of Abel. And four is a genealogy from Adam right through until Noah. And with that, every person who, through that genealogy, is named, how many years they lived for is recorded, the age they were when they had their first son, and that is recorded, and that son carries on to the next, next generation, right through. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? That that level of detail comes out of before the flood, where everything else in that time was destroyed. I find that really quite incredible. And we wonder how on earth that actually happened. Well, first of all, of course, God has chosen to preserve that information for us. How did he actually do it? We don't quite know. It has been said that there may have been stones on the, on the, uh, on the ark that preserved those stories right through. Or they could have been basically handed down from generation to generation until the time then when, um, when what's his name? Moses wrote them down. Okay, but either way, what, however it happened, they were so carefully preserved right through those early generations. And I find it interesting that, uh, that there is that level of detail. It's brief for sure. If we were a journalist there in Adam's time, we might have written a longer story. 
But the crucial parts of all of that, what happened back then, has been carefully recorded for us. And there's one other proof that it's true. And that is this, that everything that comes out of that story is happening today. Right? Adam and Eve were told that they could live in that garden. They had their work to do to look after the garden. They were told that, of course, they could eat all the, of all the trees of the garden, but there was one that they were not allowed to eat from. I don't believe that God simply put a tree there and marked it with an X and said, that's the tree you're not allowed to touch. This is a test of your behavior. There was a reason why he told Adam not to touch that tree. Now, there's nothing fairy tale about all that kind of stuff because there is plenty of stuff out there today that if we touch it and eat it, it's not good for us. Okay? There was a reason why uh, he was told not to touch it. But he did, didn't he? But he did. And he said, and God called out to him at the end of the day, what, what happened? He, he ate it, and next thing we, we read about them running around making fig trees and putting them on it, and things, something actually happened. And he's hiding himself. And then God calls out to him at the end of the day and he says, I heard you walking in the garden, so I heard. I heard. I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? God knew the signs. But of course he knew. He was God. But he, he knew the signs. As soon as he saw Adam, Adam behaving in that way, he knew full well that he had taken from the tree he was not supposed to eat. But the death was not from the fruit of the tree, was from the disobedience because the serpent deceived Eve into doing what she had been told not to do. And it says in Romans that as through the one man's disobedience, the many who were many were made sinners. And so also through the obedience of one, and we're going to talk about him later, um, many will be made righteous. And in that same chapter, just three verses before, it says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind, because all had sinned. And so the sin was, and the disobedience, and the switching of allegiance of obeying uh, the serpent instead of obeying God. And he, they broke that relationship. They did what God commanded them not to do. And that's where sin came into the world. So the evidence of all of that is here today. Let me explain that one. And the God said to the man, this is the punishment, that, uh, the curse that he was going to bring on the man. He says, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. Is that true today? We work hard, don't we, to try and make a living today. And when we try and work our gardens or our paddocks, it grows thorns and thistles. And though you will eat of its grains, by the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. And so that's the way things had changed. The, 
he would have to go and carve out a living outside of that garden where it was hard and where the soil was tainted and spoiled with seeds of thorns and thistles and that's the way life would be for him. And it's still like that today. Life can be quite tough, can't it? We might not all be farmers. We might not all be doing um, agriculture. But nevertheless, life is hard trying to make a living. And at the end of our days, we go back to the ground where we came from. What about the women? And he said, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband. He will rule over you. And so there is um, this thing that has happened and to the women of our world where we men, yes, you can start laughing if you like, but it's not funny really, isn't it? The women of our world from that day to this have been treated abysmally, ruled over, suppressed, and, some, and we need to hold our heads in shame for the way that men have treated the women down through the years. Is that correct? It is correct, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's the way things have gone. There was a third party in that whole um, Garden of Eden scene, and that was the serpent who deceived Eve in the first place. And this is what he got. But this is something that we really need to take careful note of because it has a part to play in the other things that we are going to talk about this morning. It says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And the Lord said, look at the human beings who have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out now and take from the tree of life and eat it? They will live forever. Now, I don't know, theologically, just exactly what could have happened if they had gone straight out and eaten of the tree of life. It was not meant to be because the death penalty was passed on all mankind. And so it was that they were blocked from going and eating from that tree. And that's why God put there um, the cherubim with those flaming sword to keep them away from that tree of life. We're going to look at four gardens today. That was the first one. But in that first garden, there was that reference to the tree of life, the tree that um, would have made us live forever. Our access to that tree was taken away at that point. Adam's access to that tree was taken away at that point. But as we have looked back and seen what our beginnings really were, so now I just want us to look forward to another time, the only other time in Scripture where we read about that tree of life. And this is a heavenly scene now, right at the end of time, and it's right at the other end of our Bibles. It's right through in Revelation 22. And the angel shows John this river 
of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, don't be, try and be too complicated here. Artists, I tried to find a picture of what it might look like. It's not a very good picture. It's not a photo because there's never been a camera there yet and there never will be. Uh, but this is an, an impression, but as you look at the various photos on the website to see what it might look like, they've struggled with this. I saw the tree of life on both sides of the river. And then it bears 12 crops of fruit and different people have tried to interpret that different ways. They've tried to make a tree coming up both sides of the river. It's on both sides of the river. Um, and there's 12 crops. Is there 12 trees? Are there two trees? Is there one tree? I really don't know. But it doesn't matter, does it? But here we read about the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit and here it is functioning as it was supposed to function as it was meant to function, away back there in the Garden of Eden. And it, just read that last sentence. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So much stuff has happened since Adam and Eve ate the tree of the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat from. Two other gardens. We've looked at a garden at the beginning of time. We've looked at a garden right at the end of time. We today are standing, as it were, right in the midst of time. We are, aren't we? So much time, something like 8,000 years since, maybe 9,000 years since the time of Adam. How many years through the millennium and all that kind of stuff until we get... Uh, finally to see that final garden where the tree of life is in, Re in Revelation 22. But in the midst of time, something needed to happen to allow us to be able to re-enter God's favour, to save us from that death penalty and make it so that one day we will be able to see or enter that garden in heaven where that final tree of life actually is. Two gardens in the middle of time when Jesus was here on earth. One of them is Gethsemane. Gethsemane was an olive grove, or a garden with olive trees in it, it's on the Mount of Olives, and it says in Luke 22 that Jesus, after he left the upstairs room, now the scene here is the time when they kept the, Jesus kept the Passover with his disciples just before he went to the cross. He went from that upstairs room to this garden, and then from there he was arrested and then from there he was crucified. And so this was all that um, coming together, if you like, of what was going to happen there in the midst of time. It says that Jesus went as usual to the Mount of Olives. Okay? 
So now we've probably all got, and that's why I put some of these photos up of gardens and our favourite spots, but we've probably all got those favourite spots that we go to, right? Maybe you don't, maybe it's, maybe it's just in your own garden, but we've got our little spots. I've got a spot that I like to go to when I walk in the morning and, um, and it gives me a view right out to the Hawkton Ranges. There's a seat up there and I can sit and pray. And Kim and I, we go walking at night time sometimes and we'll come back and we'll sit there for a little while as well. It's very romantic. It's, um, what is it, uh, what is today? Uh, Valentine's, that's Valentine's Day every day that we go and do that, okay? But there we spend time just thinking and talking and praying as well. Well, Jesus, it says, he went as usual. So he was accustomed to going there. And then, um, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I got some competition here, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, it says in verse 2 that Judas, the betrayer, knew the place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. So this was his little spot. He went there. And um, we know what happened there, don't we? He left his disciples and he went away a little bit further on. And then he prayed and he prayed there, knowing what was going to happen in the, immediate, the very immediate future. He says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him and he prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. That is quite something, isn't it? Medically, they tell us that that can happen when there is so much extreme torment of mental torment that people can do that they can sweat and sweat and sweat yeah I know what it's like to to sweat when I'm in agony but I've never done this sweat until your sweat turns to blood and that's what he was like there why imagine stepping into a dangerous situation to save somebody last week we heard about a a fireman in, in America, somebody married to one of Kim's past friends who lost his life and in the line of duty. We don't know any of the circumstances at all. Imagine, sometime, imagine you know, sometimes you hear stories about somebody swept out to sea and uh, somebody who enters really rough water to try and save that person and what they must feel as they step in to that situation, knowing that they are really putting their lives at risk. Well, earlier I read about um, Satan and what happened to him, and in that, yeah, and and his curse was this: that he would there would be um, there would be I I I, meant, I forgot to actually say too much about it when we were back on that slide, but it was. Um, the seed of the woman would, would strike his head, but he would continue to try to bite her heel. There is this thing that is set up between Satan and mankind, or Satan and the seed of mankind, 
where Satan would be constantly trying to destroy as he had in the garden. But one day, one of the seed would strike Satan's head. And here in this situation, we have got um, Jesus not just facing death, but Satan is standing, as it were, between us and the villain to take our punishment. And he is stepping into a death situation where he would take all of our penalties, but he would be subjected to everything that Satan would throw at him to try and destroy him. And so much is the intensity of that that is that his blood becomes like great his sweat becomes like great drops of blood going falling down to the ground. But he goes through it. He goes through with it. And then there is the arrest that happens immediately afterwards. And there is the crucifixion on the cross. And now we read about another garden, which has got a tomb in it. And that's where Jesus is buried after the crucifixion. They put his body in this tomb, in this garden. We read here that Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, in other words, a secret Christian because he feared the Jewish leaders, asks Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and he took the body away. Now note this here. With them comes Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. And together they brought 20, 75 pounds of perfumed ointments and they wrapped the body and they put it here in, the, um, in that tomb. So, and they put it in a new tomb, never, never before used. So because it was the Jewish preparation for the Jewish Passover, since the tomb was close at hand, they put Jesus there. And they put a stone over the door. And they sealed it. Why did they do that? So the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, went to Pilate. And after his crucifixion, after he had been buried, and they begged Pilate to allow them to put a, a watch over that tomb to make sure that nobody would come and steal the body of Jesus because they said, uh, if that happens, we'll be worse off than we were before, at first. It's almost like an admission of guilt already that something has gone wrong. And Jesus replies, take guards and secure it as best you can. And so they, they roll the stone, they put the uh, the Roman governor's seal on it, and they set up this guard's watch outside of that tomb, to, not, to, not to keep people out this time. No, to keep Jesus in. Interesting reversal of things, isn't it? Because here now we're coming to that climax, that battle between Satan and Jesus, and they wanted beyond anything else to make sure that Jesus stayed in that grave. Why? It makes no sense, doesn't it, that, does it, that, that Jesus who came from heaven to save us and pay the price for sin, they should want to keep him in that grave. 
It made no sense at the very beginning that this one would go into that Garden of Eden scene and disrupt that perfect living style, that relationship between Adam and Eve and God. Unless the person doing it had a vendetta, had a reason to disrupt and to destroy, and that was Satan. It made no sense that soldiers driven by religious leaders would even want to put Jesus in that grave, let alone to set a guard to try and keep him in here. And it makes no sense, does it, that even today there is so much animosity against Christianity as opposed to the religion's of the rest of the world. Last time I spoke, I told you the story of a, of a friend of Kim's and a man that I had met who spent years in a Malaysian jail for supposedly witnessing to Muslim people something which he said he didn't actually do. It was a setup. Okay? Some of you may have seen that movie, God is Not Dead Too, where... Some of you, some of you seen that? Yeah. Where a teacher answering the question of a student in her classroom, truthfully, was accused of trying to bring Christianity to those kids when she was not allowed. Recently, I, just, I read another book, the story of a, of a Buddhist monk. I saw this in the bookshop, in a Christian bookshop, when I was down in Dunedin a couple of weeks ago. And I thought, and, I, when I, and the, the book is called Leaving Buddhism. And uh, I thought it might be interesting given our own personal connections with Buddhist people, Buddhist family and others, and of course the whole country of Malaysia that we are connected with. Um, and so I read it and it was an extremely interesting story and I wish I could tell you the whole story but I can't really. But he was a, as a young boy he was taken to a Buddhist temple and given there by his family, only about six years old. And he grew up in that temple, in that monastery. And he had a teacher, and they taught him the ways of Buddhism. But in their, um, in their training, they were still encouraged to go and look around uh, at the various religions of the world, including um, Muhammad, and read about his teachings and see what all they could learn about it. In fact, the, this guy was in Tibet. I forgot to say the bit. He was in Tibet. Okay, and the Tibetan Buddhism is a different um, breed of Buddhism, Buddhism than in other countries because it's all mixed up with Hinduism. But so they are encouraged to, to learn as much about every other religion of the world as they possibly can. And one day, in his growing up, he asked a question, what about Jesus Christ? Well, they told him never, ever to mention that name around that place anymore. He actually had to leave at one stage because the Tibet was actually invaded by, uh, by the Chinese and he fled across the mountains in bare feet, something like um, 10 days travelling across the Himalayan mountains in bare feet because he couldn't go back to grab his shoes or they would have known that he was gone. And um, with guides and they came out in, the, in Nepal and eventually finished up down in, in India. And so he lived over in India for a long time and he, and he associated himself with the, with the monasteries down there. Um, and he, uh, the Dalai Lama, he even met the Dalai Lama many times and was taught by him a little bit. 
And so his education was expanding, but all the time that he was learning, he was trying to make sense of it all, and he had no peace at all with the stuff that he was actually learning. He was given an opportunity to flee to America at one stage. Some of his relatives who were Christians came, and they wanted to take him, but he didn't know enough about what was happening to be able to accept that, and he didn't go. Eventually, he finished up back in in Tibet after his father died, and... While he was there, back in the original monastery, he got sick. He got TB. He was coughing up blood, and he finished up having to go to the hospital. When he was in hospital, he met a Christian doctor. Christian doctor was from a European um, country, um, and he really couldn't do anything for him, though, medically, because he was dying. He really was dying. Uh, But he, he spoke kindly to him and did everything he possibly can for him and one day he asked him what is it that makes you different and he says it's Jesus Christ and he said what and he says yes it's Jesus Christ and he says all my life I've tried to find out about Jesus Christ and I cannot understand why people won't talk about him and so this doctor taught him about Jesus Christ and then he prayed for him and that was another thing because people and his religions never pray for people they only pray for themselves and to get kudos get to get to advance up so that they can go to heaven or come back as a, as a better person and not a rabbit or something. Um, he never ever heard of somebody praying for somebody else and this doctor prayed for him. When he couldn't do anything else for him, he prayed for him. And he was healed over the period of the next week or so when there was nothing else that they could do. God came into him and healed him. And also as they talked more and more the doctor gave him a Chinese Bible because there was none in Tibetan language and he struggled his way through it and he learned as much as he could and eventually he had to leave the hospital because he was well and he went back to that original monastery and he knew what he needed to do and he called a debate because that's how they used to talk about stuff and in the, in this, in the town square they all came together for a debate and there he started asking why do you guys keep saying not, you know, not allow us to talk about Jesus and he told them his story about how that he had been saved there in that hospital and how that he had been healed and he talked to them about what he had learned and about the peace that he had found and they nearly killed him they nearly killed him they dragged him into the temple and they started beating him up. They kicked his front teeth in. They kicked him all over. His young brother was a, was a monk there as well. He was into it as well, but that was just to save his own skin. And they kicked him and tormented him until he was nearly dead and they left him there. And then in the middle of the night, his brother, his younger brother came and saved him, took him outside and helped him to flee. When they got outside, they found that his mother's house was burning because they had killed everything that belonged, they had burned everything that belonged to the family, even though, even though they had had nothing to do with it, whatever. So why does these sort of things happen? What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus, it said, was the one who came to Jesus in the middle of the night. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus in the middle of the night? It was because he also feared the regime, he, a different regime. But it was the, uh, it was the Jewish Pharisaic re- regime where they were the religious rulers and anybody who was in favour of Jesus was being persecuted as well. But Nicodemus was converted that night 
Because Jesus said to him, God didn't send into his, his son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, but to save the world. And Nicodemus learned that that night. And he also went. When Jesus was finally crucified and died, he went with Joseph. And together they were the ones who took his body down and carefully put it here in this tomb and cared for him so gently, looked after him. But then in three days, of course, that seal, that Roman guard and everything else was not able to keep him in that tomb. So that's the gospel story and that's the story that we need to understand today. It's not enough to be able to acknowledge the truth about these stories. Nicodemus had to make a choice, and we also need to make a choice. Tenzin, that, that Buddhist monk, needed to make a choice. When he realized who Jesus was, he had no hesitation in making that choice. And he came to know someone so special who could save him, where no other religious regime could save him at all. Yeah, and so we are in that place today, yeah. And so if we have never really, we might know and we might understand, might believe the stories about Jesus and all the things that happen, but until we do what Nicodemus did and make it our own, it won't mean anything to us. All of these people had to accept it for themselves, and so did Nicodemus, and so did we, so do we.